Well, this morning we're going to be in John chapter 6 together. Uh, So go ahead and turn over there if you have a Bible this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we want to offer you one. We've got Bibles that are... uh, that are provided for you. They're at the center of each aisle. You can flag somebody down who's sitting on the edge. They'd be happy to pass one to you. And we would love for you to take that with you, especially if you don't have a copy of the Bible. We'd love to give you a copy. Uh, We'd love to talk to you about whatever you read there. And so please take us up on it. It would make our day if you would take a Bible home with you and, and read it and then come and talk to us about what you find there. This morning we're in John chapter 6 because that's the next, the next passage in this book of John that we've been together going through since the beginning of the year. It's one of the earliest accounts of Jesus' life and teachings, what he came to do, what he said about himself, what he came to promise those who would trust in him. And today we're in, we're in the middle of John chapter 6, which is the longest chapter in this book, and I think maybe the greatest chapter in this book. That's a little bit subjective. It's probably my favorite chapter in this book. It is full of rich teaching, um, full of rich promises to us, but some, in some respects full of full of material that's difficult to get our minds around. And I think that, that, that counts. Uh, certainly today, the text that we're going we're gonna to cover today counts in that category. There, are, there is rich beauty in it, but it's unexpected. It's unexpected in its teaching and requires a lot of careful thinking on our part to understand it and savor it for what it is. This is the first text where Jesus, the first of, of a group of texts in John that are known as the I am sayings. If you've read John before, you, you probably know what I'm talking about. There, there are several places in this book where Jesus has a, a section of teaching that he begins with a statement of his own identity, of who he is. And the reason they're, they're highlighted as I am statements is that most people think he's picking up on God's language in the Old Testament. When, when Moses asks God, who are you? Who should I tell Israel that you are when I come and tell them that that you want to be their God and they, your people, and you want to set them free from Egypt. And God says, tell them, I am. Tell them, I am. Most people believe that in these statements, Jesus is taking that identity onto himself. He's saying, I am. This morning, the I am statement we've come to is, Jesus claimed to be the bread of life. And here's, here are the stakes of the passage this morning. The difference between life and death hinges on the difference between our work and God's work. The difference between life and death hinges in us understanding, appreciating the difference between God's work and our work. This passage in John chapter 6 was put here so that we could see that difference, so that we could grab onto it not just in our minds but with our hearts, so that we could avoid confusing what God has called for from us and what God has promised to do for us. This is a a chapter, a section of the chapter that's about what God wants from us and what God does for us. We want to make sure we get the difference clear in our minds and in our hearts. Now, I want to read the story first. The story picks up where we left off last week. Last week we had read about Jesus feeding 5,000 plus people with a glorified snack. The story we begin with today is actually another story of Jesus' power. We're going to read of Jesus walking on the surface of a stormy water to get to his disciples. 
We're going to resist the temptation to park there and try to understand that story. I think it's just making somewhat of the same point that the story just before makes, that Jesus has a power that is not limited by the things of this world. The fact that he has this power, this power that transcends even the material forces that, that control the rest of us, the fact that he has that power becomes important because of what he's going to say about himself through the rest of the chapter. What we want to understand this morning is what he says about himself. So I'm going to read the whole thing, but then we're going to park for a while on chapter 6, verses 22 through 40 and try to understand what Jesus says he's going to use his great power to do for us. Now, if you you found the passage, John chapter 6, I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read. I'm going to begin reading verse 16, read the story of Jesus walking on the water, have that story, that picture of his power in your mind when when you hear what Jesus says about himself, starting in verse 22, going all the way through verse 40. This is the word of the Lord. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they'd eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Well, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. This is God's Word. You can be seated now. Main point for today, I've already said it. The difference between life and death hinges on the difference between our work and God's work, between our ability to see and savor the difference between our work and God's work. Those are the two sections of our time this morning. This is how we're going to unpack the, 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 the scriptures we just read together. I want to begin with the work that God wants from us, and then we want to see the work that God does for us. Make sure that that difference is clear. The work that God wants from us comes in, in chapter 6, verses 22 to 35, especially building, though, to verse 29 of chapter 6. Now, I've already, I've already set up the, the stage here. Jesus has just fed 5,000-plus people with a mere snack. He's followed it up with another miracle that demonstrates the same power over the forces of nature. He has walked on a stormy sea as if it was dry ground. Now he's on the other side of the sea when the crowd finally catches up to him and they're looking for more. Because you know what had happened to that crowd? These people had just been fed from nothing. They had full bellies because Jesus created something right in front of them. But you know what happened to them that next morning? They woke up hungry. It's their insatiable appetites that drive them back to Jesus. Their appetites, just like ours, just like our appetite for food, anything else we look to in this world, never fully satisfied. Their appetites have drawn them to Jesus, but Jesus knows what's in their heart. When they find Jesus, his response to them, just like so many other times in this gospel, when they find him, Jesus' response cuts right to the chase. He says to them in verse 26, You don't want me. You didn't come to me because you saw the signs. In other words, because you got the point of my feeding of 5,000 people, that it, it wasn't really about the bread. It wasn't about the meal. It was about me and what I came to offer you. You missed the sign. What you, what you saw was that you got your bellies filled and you didn't have to do anything for it. It didn't cost you a dime. And you wanted more of that. Jesus' encouragement to them here points them straight to this radical statement he's going to make about what God wants from us. Jesus encourages them. We've seen this also in John before. Jesus encourages them to look past the merely physical, right? Their minds, it's like they have blinders on, like a racehorse that only sees in, in one narrow space. Their blinders, they see the physical needs. They're locked in on what they want from this world, and they want full bellies, right? Jesus is trying to point them to something deeper, that beneath the surface, it isn't just their stomachs that are empty, it's their lives that are empty. It's their lives that are hungry. They're constantly giving themselves over to things that are are not satisfying them. That's what Jesus wants them to see when he says in verse 27, don't labor for the food that perishes. Quit trying to aim your life at things that aren't going to satisfy you, but labor instead for the food that won't perish. Their response to him shows that they're tracking with him, sort of. They get that he is offering them something greater than mere physical food for their bellies, right? They get that. 
But what they don't get, what they don't get is his statement that the Son of Man is the one who will give it to you. What they pick up on is that he says, don't labor. They pick up on the work part. They say, okay, he's going to give us something. He's claiming he can give us something supernaturally satisfying. But he's saying we've got to work for it. So tell us what to do. What do we have to do to get this food that's going to make us never hungry again? What do we have to do to labor for the food that isn't going to perish? God gives it to those who work, right? That's what you can see coming out in their, in their response to Jesus. They assume that, that the works of God and their ability to do them, to check them off the list, is what ultimately matters. So what does God want from me? Reminds me of, of, of the, uh, the students I had in my very brief career as a university teacher. I mean, I used to hear some of the, uh, the old crotchety types, the old crotchety professors talking about back in their day. Students didn't feel entitled to an A. Students were happy to get it when they got it, but they didn't feel entitled to it. Work used to matter back then. Now, now students, now all, all the students want to know is what do they got to do on day one? What hoops do they got to jump through to get that A? They know that they're entitled to that A. They're A students. They know that about themselves. So if they don't get the A, it's probably just because the syllabus wasn't clear, the professor didn't make their expectations widely known, maybe the expectations were unrealistic or the assignments weren't well-defined, but the A is an entitlement of those who work hard, right? Day one, tell me what to do, I'll do it, get that A, and move on. There's no, there was no, I remember these professors were complaining there was no thought that the work itself might be too difficult for them to get an A. Or that, that what they complete just might not be that great. No, it was about hoops. They assumed that they had the ability to jump through them. And that's exactly the kind of attitude that, the, that these, these folks are bringing to Jesus. They assume that whatever the works of God are, well, surely we have the ability to do them. So let's just make a deal, all right? You tell me what to do, I'll do it. You give me the food that doesn't perish. I wonder if this sounds something like your perspective on the Christian life. If I asked you what it takes to be a good Christian, I wonder what you would say. If I asked you what makes you confident you are a Christian, what would your answer be? Would you point to the way that you serve in the church or in the community? Would you point to the, to the activities that you do that mark you off as a Christian? Would you point to the time that you spend reading the Bible or how faithful you are in attending church? Would you point to how much you give? Point to the fact that you don't give yourself over to drunkenness or drug abuse? I wonder if Jesus' answer to his hearers comes as a surprise to you as it surely did to them. What does God require from me? Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Let's make a deal for that imperishable food. And Jesus' answer to them is, verse 29, this is the work of God. No works of God, one work. Here it is. This is the work of God. You want that food? Do this. Believe in him whom, you, whom he has sent. Believe. The work of God is to believe in the one that he sent, plain and simple. If you want to have eternal life, Jesus is saying, it comes only as a gift, 
not as a reward. And the only thing you can do to get that gift is take it. But what does it mean to believe in Him? How do you know you have believed in Him? To, to understand and un- unpack this better, I think we've got to move on. We've got to move into what the, the passage is mostly concerned to teach us. Most of this text is not about our work. Most of this text is about God's work for us. The rest of Jesus' statement is about his identity and what he came to give to us. Not what he came to ask for from us, what he came to give to us, to all who believe. Our work, believe in the one that he sent. We're going to understand more what it means to believe in him if we turn to what he has promised to do for us, what it would look like to grab on to what he's promised to give us. Let's turn there. This is in, this is in the remainder of the passage. That what, what Jesus' hearers have missed is that Jesus in His very presence with them, is the imperishable bread that He's talking about. It is right in front of them for the taking if they'll believe. So He spells it out for them in verse 35. He says, I am the bread of life. I'm the one. You're asking what God requires of you to get this bread, and He's already given it to you. I'm here. Believe. Point isn't what they've got to do to earn what Jesus can provide, but what God has done already in sending Jesus and what, what God will do when He gives us Jesus. Now, there are two things that I want to highlight about what Jesus says about Himself here, okay? Two things that help us understand what God, the work that God does for us. Our work, believe in the one that He sent. Believe what about Him? Believe in the work He does for us. What kind of work does He do for us? It boils down to two things in the rest of the passage together. Two things it is God's work through Jesus, to make us satisfied. And it is God's work through Jesus to make us secure. It is God's work, not ours, to make us satisfied. And God's work, not ours, to make us secure. Let me point you to this. I I think we've got to see to the details because it turns on its head what we expect, I think, from religion. I think what we expect, we were we're born sort of hardwired to expect that you get what you pay for, right? That in, in religion, the idea is that we satisfy God. Some sort of thing He asks for from us. Some sort of list of things He requires of us. We satisfy Him. And when He's satisfied, then He gives us what we want. Our other assumption is that we're the ones who make ourselves secure, right? If you want job security, you've got to keep performing the job, Right? Unless you're, in, unless you're tenured, right? And then you can kind of coast from here on out. But it's just assuming you guys aren't tenured. You want job security, you've got to keep performing. So we assume in religion, if I want to keep the things God has said he would give me, I've got to keep giving him what he wants. I'm only as secure as my performance continues to be on par with what God has asked for from me. All right? Jesus is turning that expectation on its head. He's completely flipping it. No, no, it's not our work to satisfy God and to keep ourselves secure. It is God's work to satisfy us and God's work to keep us secure. All right, now let me, let me point you to this in the text. First, he can satisfy us. He can make us satisfied. That's verse 35. Verse 35 is the key. Here's what Jesus says. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What does he mean here? C- clearly he's speaking in a metaphor. Right? Later on, he's going to become even more explicit in his metaphor. He's going to talk about eating him and drinking him in the passage we're going to look at next week. And this, this text, verse 35, I think helps us understand what he means when he eventually says, 
eat me and drink me. Here he's saying, he who believes in me, he who comes to me and believes in me won't be hungry. Oh, okay, so eating him so that we're not hungry means coming to him and believing in him. He who believes in me will never thirst. Okay, so drinking him must mean believing in him. To believe in him is to to have our thirst quenched. He's speaking in metaphor. He's saying that coming to him and believing on him is what quenches our hunger and our thirst. So what is the metaphor getting at? Remember the backdrop here, okay? The crowd is looking for more food because what they have eaten has left them hungry again. Their appetites aren't satisfied. They need more. Jesus is taking that physical hunger, that physical reality all of us know, that no matter how many good meals we have, we always need something else the next day. He's taking that physical reality we know and he's making a spiritual point with it. That, that our lives look like that. That our lives are given to pursuing things that ultimately don't satisfy us. And he's calling on them to look to him for satisfaction there on that spiritual soul level. Jesus is is building on the fact that so much of our time and energy and money and ambition and emotion is aimed at food that promises satisfaction but ultimately perishes and leaves us wanting more. He's thinking about stuff he's already said in this gospel. He's thinking back to the woman at the well, chapter 4. This woman who Jesus says, if you knew who you were talking to, what you'd ask me for is a well of water inside you that never runs dry, and that once you've, drank, once you've been drinking from it, you'll be thirsty again. There the woman thinks he's talking about real water. He raises her to another level. He asks her about her husbands, right? She asks about how to get this living water, and he points her to the things she's been drinking from that haven't satisfied her. Go get your husband. I don't have a husband. You're right, you don't have a husband. You've had five of them, and the man you're with now isn't even your husband. You've been thirsty. And you've tried to quench that thirst through companionship and intimacy, and every single time, you've been let down. Stop drinking from things that won't satisfy that thirst and come to me for living water after which you will never be thirsty again. That's what Jesus is thinking of here. He's thinking of those that he talked to in chapter 5. Chapter 5, he's, he's talking with people who are disputing with him. They don't like what they're hearing from him. And he tells them, you refuse to come to me. You'll never come to me because you refuse. And the reason you refuse is that what you want is praise from each other. Remember that section in chapter 5 near the end of it? How will you ever believe in me, he said, if you seek praise from one another? He's pointing to this hunger that so many of us have to be approved of by other people, to be thought well of by those that are around us in our lives, to be known for something, to be known as having done or accomplished something great. But that, that hunger never goes away, does it? You might have somebody's approval for a while, but how, what, what are you gonna, how, how long is it going to take for you to, to, to cost yourself that approval? Can you really trust in it? Your, the approval of other people is something you have until you don't have it. Maybe he's thinking about those who are locked in on material security. That seems to be the folks he's talking to here. The desire to ensure survival. For them, that meant more food, right? It's a different time. But for us, we, we're pretty confident that we know where our meals are going to come from. But <laughs> are we any more satisfied? Just because I don't have to worry that I'm going to have some lunch when I get home? What number has to be attached to that bank account before you ever feel secure and satisfied? Doesn't it keep moving on us? 
Or maybe he's thinking about work. I can't imagine what it would feel like to be fully satisfied with something I've done. I don't know if you guys feel that way. That's one of my big issues. One of my big sin struggles that I'm constantly bringing to God and repenting of and asking for healing from is my intense desire to do something good and my inability to ever get there. What would it feel like to have finished a job and feel fully satisfied with it? I can't imagine. I guess preaching is about the closest thing I come to to actual work. And maybe once or twice a year, I get a sermon that I feel pretty good about, but you know what happens? Every single time that's happened, every time, I go to sleep feeling pretty good, I wake up, and it's Monday morning. And you know what comes after Monday? Tuesday, and then Wednesday, and then Thursday, and eventually Sunday. And i got to get up there and do it again. Was I satisfied with the job? Well, of course not, because it, there's just more work to be done. This last week, I, I, um, I, got, a, uh, I got a request to do a, a blog interview for a book that I've got coming out. I guess this is starting to sound like an advertisement. It's really not. I can, let me go ahead and promise you now, you do not want to read this book. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's the, the product of something I did in graduate school, sort of the end to that great uh, period of my life. It's coming out later this summer. And so I get this, this, uh, this, this site that sort of spotlights nerdy historical works, wants to know why I decided to write on this thing that I decided to write on. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm thinking that's great. You know, I'm reading through the, through the questions. I can answer all those. And I get to the last one. And that last question is, what are you working on as your next project? And I just thought, this project almost killed me. And it isn't that good. And you're wondering about my next project. Where's the satisfaction in that? It's not there. It's not there. And if those are the kinds of things we live for, it won't be in us. But Jesus wants for us a different quality of life. He wants to give us life and satisfaction on a different plane from the empty ambitions that capture so much of our hearts. He wants to free us from giving our hearts to and aiming our lives at good things, but things that won't finally satisfy us. Things that will leave us dead at the end of our lives with nothing to show for it that will outlive best case scenario 30 or 40 years. A couple years back, uh, there was a Vandy housing complex that got bulldozed to put up a new one. I forget what they called them. They were over there on the corner across from Qdoba and TGI Fridays. They were pretty bad. My sister used to live in one of them. They needed to be bulldozed, but they were named for somebody. And the new place isn't named for the same guy. I just thought of the, the metaphor in that. Think of the pride of that guy's family the day they cut the ribbon on that complex. Oh, his name is going to live on. They're going to remember him. Maybe he, was, maybe he had died by this point. I don't know what he accomplished or how much money he had to get a, a set of buildings named after him on Vandy's campus, but it had, to be, it had to be pretty good. But here I am. Went to Vandy 
had a sister live in the place, and this minute, right now, I cannot tell you the name of those buildings that God pulled us. His name lived longer than most of ours will, and it's gone. And Jesus doesn't want us aiming our hearts and our lives at making a name that no one will remember. Jesus came to satisfy us with himself, with a food that isn't going to perish, but that's going to grow more and more satisfying forever. That's a concept that blows our minds. But he's saying he can raise us up on the last day and give us himself. And that in giving us himself, he is giving us a food that will be more and more satisfying forever. So how do you get the satisfaction that Jesus offers? Isn't that what you're asking? That's what I was asking all week. Okay, I want to know. I don't feel it now. Sometimes I do. I'm trying to grow in that. I'm trying to get more satisfied in Jesus. but, But often I don't feel satisfied in him, if I'm honest. But here's where we're tempted. What we want, natural enough, tell me how to get satisfied. He says he can do it. What will it take? Just tell me what to do. Here's where we get tempted, okay? Slipping back into the mode of Jesus' hearers. What is the work that God requires? Tell me what to do. Give me the hoop so I can jump through them and get satisfied in Jesus. Let's make a deal. But what we're talking about here, what Jesus is offering, just doesn't work that way. It's a relational satisfaction. It's not simple cause and effect. It'd be like me asking a friend of mine, okay, just, just tell me what to do so I can be satisfied in our friendship. All right, just, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And then I'll be satisfied in our friendship. It doesn't work that way. It isn't simple cause and effect. It builds over time through investment, engagement. But ultimately, the reason it doesn't work that way is that the satisfaction that Jesus is saying He can give that nothing else can comes as a gift. It's a bread that the Son of Man has to give you. You can't do anything to get this satisfaction in Jesus. Are you sitting there wondering what it's going to take for you to be satisfied like Jesus tells you He can satisfy you? And wondering now, just give me something I can go home with. Give me a practical handle, please. That I can go home and give me something to do to be satisfied. And here's the answer, friends. You can't do anything. It is God's work to satisfy you. And God's work alone. What he asks for from you is to believe in him. What he asks for from you, what he means when he says believe in me, is to come to him. And coming to him will look like going to the places that he's accessible to you. It will mean coming to Him in His Word, where you can read about Him, where you can learn of His beauty, when you can encounter this picture of Him like you encounter a work of art. It will mean coming to Him in prayer where you converse with Him. It will mean opening up and being honest about who you are and what you need. It will mean coming to Him in His body where you see the effects of Him in His church where you see the effects of the satisfaction that He says He can offer in the lives of other people. And as you see Him be good enough for them, you're encouraged to give yourself to Him. It means coming to Him. It means not coming to other things. You want to be satisfied in Jesus? It comes as a gift. There's no way to make sure you get satisfied in Him. But it won't come 
It won't come to you to whatever extent you're coming to the other things in this world that offer you satisfaction. To whatever extent you're giving your heart and aiming your life at the things of this world, good things, gifts of God, but in any ultimate sense, to whatever extent you're pursuing them, you're running away from Jesus and away from the satisfaction that Jesus says He's come to give you. So you want to be satisfied in Him? You can't earn it. You can't make sure you're going to get it. What you can do is come to Him. Not to the things of the world. And trust that if you do, He'll make good on His word. So come. Come. Jesus can make us satisfied. That's His promise. That's God's work. There's another aspect to His work, though. This is where we want to finish. There's another aspect to His work in the rest of this passage. God's work for us, the work He does for us, satisfy us. But also, He can make us secure. He can make us secure. This comes out in verses 36 to 40. It is God's work to make certain beyond all shadow of doubt that God's children are raised at the last day, that not one of them is lost to death. Now, now follow the progress of this passage with me, okay? It's critical that we get this right. Jesus says in verse 36, having just said he's the bread of life, he acknowledges, verse 36, you've seen me and yet you don't believe. That raises a question. Is what Jesus has come here to do going to actually happen? Is there a chance that it's all for nothing? That he's come here to offer himself as bread and no one's going to feast on him? They're seeing him in the flesh right now. And they're not believing Plus, we already know what he said in chapter 3. There he talked about the importance of new birth. That, that in order to really see the promises of God and love them, God has got to change who you are. He's got to make you new so that you see and love Jesus. Chapter 3 also talks about people loving the darkness rather than the light. If people love the darkness rather than the light, if they don't want to come to Jesus because they don't want to be exposed, then how is anyone going to believe? That's the, that's the burden of verse 36. And that's... That is the burden Jesus addresses in verses 37 to 39. Here's the progress. Jesus is confident that his life won't be wasted because all that the Father gives me will come to me. There's no exception in that sense. What that sentence, verse 37, assumes is that those who belong to Jesus, Jesus' people, those that he satisfies and makes secure, they are given to him as a present from God. God knows who they are. He marked them off and He gives them to His Son as a present. Now how can Jesus be sure that those the Father gives Him He will never cast out? That's what verse 37 says. They've come to, they'll come to me and I know they will because God has given them to me. He is going to make them come to me. He is going to draw them to me. That's a, that's a theme for, the, for next week, next week's passage. So Jesus is claiming once they come, I'm never going to let them go. I'm going to keep them in. How can he do that? How can he be sure? The rest of the verses unpack this idea. I've come down from heaven, Jesus says, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I know they're going to come, and I know I'm going to keep them because, for, I didn't come to do my own will. I didn't come here on a joyride. I came here on a mission. Jesus is special forces on a very tightly tightly controlled mission that he will accomplish. And he's come, not for his own will, 
but for the will of the Father. So what is the will of the Father? What has He come to aim everything about His life and all of His power to do? That's verse 38. I, verse 39. This is the will of Him who sent me. Here it is. That I should lose nothing of all that He's given me, but raise it up on the last day. He's come for one reason only. He's come to do the will of His Father. And the will of His Father is that He would lose nobody. Remember, we've already seen this theme come up in chapter 5. We've imagined it as a rescue mission that God and His Son, Jesus Christ, hashed out together. We've imagined them looking down on the world that they made and on the people that they made in their image. And that, that seeing these people walking like zombies through their lives and ending up in death, their hearts are broken for them. And they decide, we have got to do something about this. We have to save them. Jesus tells His Father, I will save them. I will go. I will give them my life. And the Father says to Jesus, here it is. I'm going to give them to you. You go bring them home. Bring the children home. And He comes. He comes to give His life and to stand guard over those that He buys at the cost of His own blood. He comes with the promise that He and His power will make them secure. Here, folks, here is where you see why John has been telling us the things that John has been telling us about Jesus. What has he told us? A couple different themes lately. That Jesus isn't just out here on a rogue mission doing his own thing. He didn't come for a joyride. I only do what I see the Father doing. What the Father tells me to do, I do. Jesus is obedient. Jesus has power over everything, even the things that dwarf us in their power. Jesus has the power to make food out of nothing. He has the power to walk on stormy seas. And it's that obedience and that power that are aimed now at doing the one thing God sent him here to do. Go get the children and bring them home. Don't lose anything. Don't lose anybody. And now his power and his obedience are aimed at accomplishing that mission. He will make us secure. That's the promise. His power and His obedience make us secure. Now, we're going to unpack some more of this next week. There are implications here that are unexpected for many of us when we come to this passage. How does God decide who He's going to give to the Son? Does this mean that He forbids others from coming? What does this mean for our responsibility to believe? We're going to unpack more of those questions next week. For now... I want you to notice that the main point here is that we should rest. The main point is not to cause us fear about whether or not we might belong among those that God has given to His Son. The point is, believe in Him. And if you believe in Him, He will bring you home. He will raise you up at the last day. And nothing, nothing can stop Him from doing what He has come to do. The difference between life and death hinges on the difference between our work and God's work. Our work is to believe in the one that He sent, to come to Him, or in the words of verse 40, to look on Him, to consider Him, to see that He can do what He says He'll do, and to grab onto Him in faith. Our work is to believe. God's work, God's work through Jesus, 
is to satisfy us in the way that nothing else could and to hold on to us so that He can raise us up at the last day. He will not stake His life to something He can't deliver. He will not let your security rest on your weakness. He will make you secure. That's what He's asking you to believe. And He's asking that of all of you. Friends, do not think you are the exception to the whoever believes. He knows what you've done. He knows who you are. He knows every one of your limitations, every one of your failures. And He came so that if you believe in Him, He can bring you home. Cling to Him and He will never let you fall. Father, this is our only hope. We, we know that we do not have the strength to be who you made us to be, to hold on even to Jesus until He comes again. And that even us staying true to Him must come as a gift from your hand to us. We want to do the work of believing. Even that belief, even for that, we need your Spirit's power. Help us, Father, and hold on to us by Your Son. For Your name's sake, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.